0: Yeah, this is a good time to turn the light off. It's really interesting what happens to your senses when you can't see anything, you know? Oh, oh sí, my God. God. <laughs> gracias. Gracias, gracias. At some point, no you sepa. may leave the room and we will not <laughs> realize. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to vanish. <laughs>
1: Lydia Oudachman is an Algerian-born multidisciplinary artist who has spent much of her life in the UK. In her installations and interventions, the notions of object and subject, considered separate in Western thought, converge and dialogue between the public and private, the alien and borrowed, migration and extractivism, everyday life and the effective materiality of things. By moving certain objects from places that are geographically far apart, kept separate due to capitalistic, colonial and border policies, she challenges the institutional structures of museums and embassies, where logistics, bureaucratic processes and surveillances can become part of a work and part of future archives. The forces of spirituality and the desire to communicate the ineffable underpin her work in an ongoing attempt to transcend time and space, paying attention to the histories that materials and objects invoke. In this podcast we talk in total darkness to Lydia about her relationship with echo as a phenomenon for the creation of negative space, about listening as a trigger for singular experience, and the necessary interval between one word and another, between the emission of a word and its resonance. We follow the import journeys of empty oil barrows from Algeria to England and explore the care of friends and family that was activated during the pandemic in moving from her flat in Algiers for an exhibition. We also talk about her connections to spirituality through her family experience, a community persecuted for its faith in her home country. Finally, we hear some open questions about the idea of home, belonging, and freedom, and about the miraculous the unexplained and the absolute. So now we're sitting in um, total darkness.
0: <laughs> the past few days, I've been thinking a lot about echolocation, uh, which is this um, this sense that is used by animals who can't see or aren't able to navigate. Um, by way of sight. So they basically emit these frequencies that then bounce off the architecture or like, you know, the environment that they're in. Um, and then by hearing the echoes that hit off the surfaces and come back to them, then they understand like what the distance is. So it's this, it's this way of navigating in the dark, I think, that kind of makes it makes the rest of your senses highly acute. And um refined, let's say. But it's also, for example, bat sights like, the only way that they can navigate. So it's like a replacement for, for sight or vision. And so like the echo is something that I've been thinking a lot about, um, and like how it's not it's not like time-based. Like the echo can be something that is um you know, spans across like moments in history or it's like an echo of like a thought or an idea. And there's something really beautiful about that, that it kind of transcends like time and space. I've been invited to do a show in Milan in a space called Ordet. One of the, the founders is Eduardo Bonaspati. And um, when he invited me like a year ago, he also told me that he was the artistic director of this Fondación Enro, which is this marble quarry in um, just next to, next to Carrara. Um, and it's a quarry that Michelangelo opened um, when he was looking for marble to work with, when he was commissioned by the Medici family. So he found this mountain called Pietra Santa, which is right next to Carrara, but it has the same kind of mountain range. I was really torn in a way because part of me was kind of feeling like this could be an opportunity to work with a material that's like um, very difficult to access. Um, And then, you know, I kind of had all these desires, let's say, to to find a way to work with this material that felt like I could justify it, you know. And then when I went and visited, um, you know, it's just kind of like it's it's so overwhelming, I think, to see, like, even just, like, the the logistics or, like, the mechanisms that are used to, to extract the material out of the mountain and, like, you know, I mean, I say weight, not in, like, the weight of the stone, but just like, like energetically, it was like a very um, intense place. It really struck me that, um, you know, the only thing that was deciding like how this material was used or is used currently is like money. You know, it's like um, capital defines like how we utilize material. And I think I was having this tour and um, this man who works there was like, you know, we call this the Russian hole because it built, like, the St. Petersburg Cathedral. This hole is, like, now, like, a block of luxury flats in Hong Kong. And it just suddenly occurred to me that, like, you know, I was like, is there any, like, who, like, decides where or who can buy this? or You know, and then there was blocks that had, like, property of 60 Wall Street, like, stamped on it. So, you know, this kind of it's this overwhelming sense of, like, how this material is displaced and then um erected elsewhere and then like the you know what remains is this like cavity like these giant cavities like in the nature and when you look to the other side it's like this you know perfect kind of landscape and then behind is this kind of brutalist like excavation um In trying to think about working with the material, I have suddenly could only think about the cavities or, like, this kind of creation of negative space um, that has happened, like, because of the demand for the material to be, you know, like, marble is something that we associate with, like, luxury. It's this kind of, you know, beyond its utility as, like, a material that can withstand time, I think, You know, now it's kind of this, um, it's about, like, creating desire or, like, it is the material through which so much desire is channeled through. Then was questioning, like, my own desire to try to work with with the material. I was like, like, what do I want from it? And then I got stuck there (laughs) because um, I don't really, I very rarely, um, you know, like, make things. Um, I think I use a lot of, like, found objects or, like, I like the idea of um, materials existing in the world and having, like, you know, a language around them and, and, like, an understanding and then, you know, you can put things into conversation with each other and they completely change form. Like, they're able to transcend themselves by, like, movement or, um, you know, existing in an installation or, like, even kind of being rendered as, like, an art object. Um, With the Marvel, I was just like, I can't, yeah, I cannot justify, like, making anything with it. Right now, like, there's no urgency. The only thing that felt urgent was, like, this concept of, like, the creation of negative space. Like, how do you measure negative space or, like, in which situations, um, like, what situation? is negative space created, you know? When we were in the quarry, there was this massive kind of section that they called the cathedral because of the echoes that, you know. And then I just suddenly saw like birds kind of nesting in these like cavities that, so then like this negative space has also created like a positive space in another sense. You know, if you think about like the integrity of the mountain, And it's been that way for, like, 60 million years, you know, the time that it's taken to produce the marble. Um, And now, like, it being excavated, suddenly there's, like, more room, you know, to deal with. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm just thinking about, like, how to measure negative space. If we were sitting in this room and I was, like, singing, you know, you might record this distance like very close, but then also you might put microphones at the outer um, edges of the space to understand like how the voice behaves in this space. But then also, so when you record that room to another space, so if we did this recording in my kitchen, we could apply the reverb of this room to that. Um, Reverb can reproduce a space. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like the echo Um, and reverb as measuring negative space so yeah I mean that's kind of why I, I thought that we could do this in the dark I've been thinking a lot recently about how relationships become material um, or are very material in how they kind of come into your life. Um, I think relationships with people kind of force you to uh, reconsider like everything that you knew previously to meeting that person. You know, if if I think about what kind of made me interested in art in the first place or trying to pursue or to find a language um, was, um, yeah, really meeting people who, whose stories I was, you know, kind of changed by and trying to find a way to communicate that or, like, even to kind of metabolize it for myself. You know, I think when I was in my second year at Goldsmiths um, we had to kind of write a proposal for our thesis dissertation and um, at the time I was hearing a lot, it was like 2011, 12, 13, um, hearing a lot about you know people that I knew or neighbours or um, were in Algeria who were um, in the process of trying to immigrate illegally by sea I wanted to understand, like, how could this desire be produced? How can a desire so strong kind of force someone to, you know, face the possibility of death rather than staying at home or, like, staying within a context that was not allowing them to, you know, have opportunities or jobs or kind of to live the lives that they wanted to lead and... um Yeah, and I think, you know, I wanted to understand, like, how someone could, like, risk their lives in in such an extreme way, you know. It was a really, like, a chance encounter. I was at my parents' friend's house, and I wouldn't normally go with them. Um, Anyway, so I went for dinner, and there was this... They had a guest there whose son he also brought, and at some point, much later in the evening, um, my mom's like, "You know, tell them what you're doing," or like she's always kind of putting me on the spot. <laughs> and, um, and then I was like, "You know, I'm, I'm, I want to speak to people who have tried to, like haraga, which is the word in Arabic for um, it means it translates." as like the burning or to burn. Um, but it's also a slang word for illegal immigration by sea. So I was like, I'm looking for people who have either like done the journey or in the process of trying. And then this guy who was like, you know, he went with 12 of his friends and then um, they got caught in Valencia. They got put in a detention center um, for four months. And then all of them were sent home apart from one who claimed um, asylum for being persecuted back at home. Then he was like, you know, I'm going to try again in a few weeks. So then we started speaking and, um, you know, during this conversation he was like, oh yeah, like switch on your Bluetooth. So I switched on my Bluetooth and he sent me this video that he'd shot when he was in the middle of the sea. And, um, you know, when he showed it to me, it was like, you, there would you know, it looked like they were having the best time ever. Like they were like laughing and sh- doing like shout outs to their friends back home and um, saying what they wanted to do when they got to Europe. So he sent me this video on Bluetooth and we arranged to meet again. But I remember like getting in the car and um, watching this video that he'd sent me on my own phone. And that just, yeah, it kind of, it completely changed my, um, it changed the way that I understood that narrative. You know, I think, um, you know, it's obviously it's impossible to understand like someone else's experience fully. But something about like the video suddenly being like projected into my own space, you know, like intimate space that you have between yourself and your phone something happened there that was really maybe the first time that I'd even um, read or understood the gravity of what I was seeing. It changed my uh, worldview and um, it changed my perception of, you know, it gave me this kind of um, urgency to find a language that could adequately communicate what had just happened. And, um, you know, I suddenly realized that there was so much um, potential in, like, what, all these kind of gaps or these kind of misunderstandings that we've created in our attempt to tell someone's story, you know. I think, you know, when you watch things on the news or, like, the way that we kind of consume information is completely... um, you know, it's become like deadpan, like the fact that you can scroll now, like through, you know, the most horrific kind of um, situations that are happening across the world. And then the next thing is like uh, a recipe, I'm not sure. And I think that's really kind of damaged our ability to like, to feel actually what it is that we're witnessing. In the end, I I ended up writing this thesis, but I also, that that year, um, or the next year, I was selected for this Bloomberg New Contemporaries thing, which is, like, you can apply for it in the UK if you're, like, graduating from art school, and it's kind of this, you know, exhibition at the ICA at the time. But I really didn't want it to be on a screen, so I kind of got this, like, to be honest, I don't really know if anyone even saw that piece. But um, I basically got this kind of—you can log on to a free Wi-Fi network, but then in order to connect, you have to like watch like an advertisement or something before. And um, so I kind of hacked this system and put the video, kind of had the video existing on the ICA's Wi-Fi, and when people came to the space, they would get like a prompt on their phones. And then once they clicked connect, this video would pop up on their phones. Um, but that was really a way of like, you know, I wanted I, I wanted that, that information for people to experience it the way that I did. And that couldn't be like mediated by a screen. I think that, you know, was really the moment that I um, started to think about the language of art and how you know, that that every situation, every kind of narrative or history that I was coming into contact with, I had this, like, need to find another way of speaking through it. And I think that has really informed um, a lot of how I think about when I'm coming into contact with people or if I kind of start thinking through, like, material and matter. I guess my first project or the the piece that I graduated from university with was this um, installation called The Third Choir. The title actually comes from, um, for me it was like, you know, my grandfather's generation, they fought, Against the French um, to gain their independence. And so many people risked their lives in this attempt to gain their freedom. And third generation after this position, they're all people from my generation are all trying to leave this country that their grandparents fought for. And the installation consists of 20 oil barrels that are from the domestic Algerian oil company called Naftal. And, you know, I think also it was part of this narrative of, like, when when I was speaking to so many young people asking them, it was within this kind of body of research about the, um, Haraga, they were saying, like, you know, Algeria is such an oil-rich country. Um, you know, it's, like, the third largest distributor of oil and natural gas and, like, none of the money comes to us and there's, like, no no opportunities or jobs. It's like, you know, they kept talking about the kind of um, the corruption um, with the government and the oil industry, you know, and also, like, because once this oil is sold, it's automatically rebranded as, like, Chevron, Shell, BP, whatever. So Naftal physically, or that brand, never leaves the country. So in a very kind of basic way, I was like, What if I tried to export these oil barrels empty um, from Algeria to the UK? And for me, you know, these objects became stand-ins for people. And I wanted them to make the same journey across the Mediterranean Sea. And, um, you know, and I kind of knew that it would be a sound installation I was doing. I had this kind of um, idea about using like a pirate radio station, to kind of put the sound into the barrels, but that was also referring to... So, like, inside each barrel there was a mobile phone and there was, like, a radio station that would emit a sound piece and each phone would be um, tuned to this frequency so that it would play the sound at the same time. But that was also referencing, like, you know, when people are in the middle of crossing the sea, they would um, have obtained, like, a Spanish SIM card, for example, and they'll put it in... Um, waiting for the signal to connect and then they know that they're on the right track. You know, I had no idea the kind of bureaucratic feat that this would garner. Um, I had heard that it was illegal to export art and this was from Algeria. um, And this was a law that was put in place in 1962 uh, when Algeria gained its independence. Um to kind of protect, like, cultural um, um, objects and artworks. And um, I knew that I couldn't call this an artwork. So when I went to the customs, I was working with a shipping um, agency in the UK and also in, in in Algeria. And they both told me, like, when you go to the customs, just say that you're moving house, these are your things, and that's it. So it was like, I wrote my first application for custom clearance. I was like, you know, you have to put a list of contents of the container, you have to put the value, et cetera. And so the list of contents was just like 20 empty metal barrels. So then I went, deposited the application, and then they were like, no, um, you know, we've declined your application because these aren't um, household effects. You know, it's not like a sofa or a fridge or they couldn't like, um, there was like no category to put an empty oil barrel as a furnishing. I went back and changed the application. I was like, okay, these are like ornaments. Because I was basically just looking at the laws and trying to find loopholes that I could say that these objects were. Um, so then I said, there were ornaments. They said, no, like, what's the value? Then I went back again. I was like, they have sentimental value. They don't have market value. And then, you know, it was this kind of back and forth, um, which lasted a week. Then eventually, um, you know, and I was going to the same people every single day. Um, with like a different, <laughs> a different proposal for what these objects were. And eventually, you know, they were just like, you know, highly suspicious of what I was doing. And they were like, this is never going to happen. Like, stop coming here. You know, we're never going to sign these papers for you. And then at that point, I kind of just like, yeah, I had a... I started crying... It was all very dramatic, but I think also that made one of them, <laughs> maybe feel sorry for me, he wasn't like the person who had the power to sign anything, but he was kind of one of the officers there, and he was like, you know, can you just tell me what you're trying to do, because um, maybe I can help you, like, what is this, you know, then I was like, you know, I'm an art student, this is my final piece, I'm like studying in London, and you know, the barrels are like representing people and I've been writing about illegal immigration and I was showing him all these like 3D renderings that I'd made of the barrels like, you know, in a kind of uniform grid. And um, he was like, okay, well, I think, you know, this is like a cultural thing, so you have to go speak to the Ministry of Culture. And I was like, who is that? And he was like, he kind of laughed and he was like, Google it. So then I went to, I literally left, went to like a... um, internet cafe in a nearby town. And like this customs office was literally like a bunch of kind of, it was like a makeshift um, building on the side of a motorway, in the middle of the industrial part um, of Oran in the west of Algeria. Then I found this government website and these two email addresses. One of them was for the cabinet minister. One of them was for the minister of culture. And I just wrote this like ridiculous email. I don't even know. I mean, it was like desperate. Anyway, um, and I put it all into like Google Translate into French and like sent this email to these two addresses. And then I go home. And then at 8pm that night, I got a phone call on my mobile phone um, from the cabinet minister, Zahira Yahi. And then we spoke on the phone for like an hour. I just explained, you know, what this project was and, you know, all of the difficulties that I had been facing in the week um, prior to the us speaking. And, um, and she was like, okay, well, like, you know, go back there tomorrow. We're going to send a fax from our office to the customs. I would say this was when it actually, when the work kind of began. <laughs> it was um, suddenly this, like, you know, web of bureaucratic um, and communication between like the customs office the ministry of culture the like regional director of i mean there was just so many different people involved and so many um letters and faxes going back and forth um because no one wanted to take the responsibility of signing an authorization to call these objects and artwork because it was hadn't been done since 1962 Eventually, um, they added a section in the Finance Act. So the Ministry of Culture added a section in the Finance Act to allow the barrels to pass as an artwork. There were 934 documents that were exchanged in that process. And it's crazy because I recently went through all of the... I call it, um, it's called the Third Choir Archives. Um, I recently went through all of the archives to kind of compile it because the work is currently being shown at the Tate and I wanted to make the archives available also for people to like be able to read through, you know, the process of what happened. The momentum of, um, and the, like, all of the difficulties that we faced in getting those objects out, that also like created the work, you know. And this, all of, you know, these conversations and like emails, faxes, like negotiations between so many different people, that is where the work is, you know. And I think the barrels just kind of created this like vessel or this avenue for um, what I would actually consider to be like the, the kind of anchor of the piece speaking about material or like the kind of the integrity of an object i think yes like i believe in the power for an object to like you know like the aura of something like that's something that is you can't assign like a value to it it's just is and um when working with um materials that are charged they're charged by their histories and but they can also be charged through um, you know how you bring them into um, your orbit, let's say. I'm currently asking myself if it's possible to not use objects. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, where a lot of my practice has involved, like, moving, you know, the kind of weight of movement, I think, is extremely burdensome. It's, um, you know, beyond, like the resources that are necessary to move an object or bureaucracy around moving it. I mean, that's one thing that we cannot defy, is, like, um, you know, space and time. (laughs) Like, it takes a certain amount of time and energy to move something. And, you know, I'm just wondering if there's a way to, like, find meaning beyond the object. the apartment piece, Barzach, Barzakh was this exhibition that really, um, it was born from this kind of inability to move. It was um, a work that came about during the pandemic um, and it was just after I was you know, I decided to move back to Algeria in 2018 and I moved into this apartment that um, I rented from a woman who had um, inherited it from her aunt who'd passed away, um, Madame Tisira. And it was the 34th apartment that I'd seen. Landlords that I was meeting wouldn't rent to me because I was like a single woman and they were like, where's your husband? Or like, where's your family? Like, it's not very common for single women to be, like, living alone in that culture still. And um, so eventually when I found this place, like, I was met by Madame Tissera's son, who had spent some time in London. So we kind of, like, were speaking in English. And, like, he obviously um, understood that I wasn't, like... And he didn't think it was weird that I was trying to live there alone. So anyway, I ended up renting this apartment and I moved in. Um, I was struck by... How furnished it was, as if someone was living there, like there was just, you know, there was like plate, like the kitchen was full, bed sheets, um, I'd open drawers, there were like sunglasses, lighters, needles, whatever, you know, and at that point, I remember entering the house with like one suitcase, and um so I just started like naturally using everything around. I remember, like, getting to the bed and, like, covering myself with this sheet and thinking, like, you know, it was, like, the quality of the... Like, the weight of the sheet was, like, a weight that I hadn't really... You know, it was, like, this very old kind of cotton, like, heavy, heavy cotton. Um, sheets aren't really made like that anymore. You know, so it was really this kind of... It was this... I embodied all of these objects. And... Um, You know, at the same time, I was kind of very conscious of like not wanting to disrupt this order that had been created or like not in a superstitious way. But I just understood that there was like this was the life of someone else. And I'm just kind of like staying for a while, you know. So over the course of two years, I'd like slowly, you know, I started to move some of my stuff in like uh, books and um, speakers and things like this. But I would just kind of arrange them around What was already there what's interesting about that apartment was that it was built in um 1901 it was one of the first buildings that was um built by the french because it's like the second street away from the sea and part of the colonial architectural plan was algiers was to look like france as people approached it from the sea um and it was this blueprint of um you know, Housemanian architecture. But what's interesting is that they were basically lifting, you know, blue blueprints from, like, Parisian apartment blocks and just, like, placing them onto the landscape without taking into consideration, like, the differences in, like, you know, the in- inclination, for example. Like, Algiers is very a hill, you know. So when these blueprints were kind of placed onto the landscape, they weren't modified to to consider, like, where they were being placed. But there are other places, um, buildings in Algiers, that have it more kind of substantially. But, you know, for example, the toilet um, door, like, you couldn't, like, put your legs in properly and shut the door because, you know, the apartment block became very thin (laughs) at the end. So it's these very kind of subtle but um, very violent um, imposing of, like, to ask the space to adapt to the building. You know, besides all of this kind of like the melding of my life with this woman's life and I understood that she also lived there alone and she um, moved back to Algeria. She was married in Germany um, and then following a divorce, she moved back to Algiers but part of the settlement was that she could keep all of these furnishings and things that she shared with her husband and that they shared um, in their life together, that she would kind of retain that as like, um, you know, what's the word? Um, Settlement, like a a divorce settlement um, in these objects. And um, of course, as soon as I entered the apartment, I was like, all of the furnishing was like this heavy, like German kind of, I was like, how did all of this get here? You know, it all most of it was bought in Germany. Like, you could see at the back of many of the pieces, like, warehouses in Munich or these little kind of signals. Even in a lot of the objects, there was, like, made in Germany, made in Germany. or like. But what struck me, I think, beyond, like, the fact that all of this material had, like, or, you know, these furnitures had come from Europe in the first place was that, this woman must have continued to live amongst them um, and they must have served as, like, reminders of her past, her previous life um, and disabled her from being able to move on, you know. And then what does it mean for me to then, like, enter this space and to, like, be in such close contact with all of these objects that represented, like, two moments in history, let's say. And this was, like, another very striking kind of, relationship that i'd formed with that space was this you know it was with these doors um so when you come up the stairs you confront this metal door and then behind it is a wooden door so there's two doors and collectively there's nine locks and um the metal door was added in the 90s during the civil war when um to kind of protect yourself and your house um you know growing up these metal doors It's, like, the last thing that would protect you. But then I kept thinking, like, if anything were to happen, like, where would you go, you know, if you're on the third floor of this apartment block? So it was also this experience of, like, going through every time you enter the house or every time you leave the house, you're kind of, like, traversing this, the weight of history that is embedded in those two surfaces, like. And also the doors became this kind of, like, this emblem of, of fear, I think, um, not only to myself, but also what they represented was like this very, um, real fear, you know. Um, after the first lockdown, I basically went to Brussels to, um, I had to work on a show with a collaborator and, um, initially. You know, they kept saying, like, the borders, to because they closed the borders in Algeria, and I actually used my British passport to leave. Um, But then I wouldn't be able to come back in until they opened the borders. I just thought, like, okay, I'm going to go to Brussels, do this project, and then by then they'll open. So then, you know, it was, like, September, like, nothing happened. Then I ended up going, I called um, a colleague and friend, Celine Kopp, who was doing the... She was, at the time, the head of the Triangle Residency in Marseille. And she had previously invited me to do a residency, but I wasn't able to go. So at this moment, I was like, I have nowhere to go. So I called her and I was like, could I come and do a residency there? And she was like, yeah, sure. So I went to Marseille and, um, you know, I didn't really know, like, how long I'd be there or what was happening. (laughs) And then, you know, the months just kept on rolling and I was like, in... I had a a commitment um, to produce a new body of work for an exhibition at Kunsthalle Basel. And, um, you know, this experience of, like, not being able to go home um, became that project, um, Barzakh. And Barzakh is this... um, It's a term in Arabic um, which is used to describe... It's like the limbo space, or it's like the space in between, but it can also be like um, it's where the soul waits before it's judged. Even though I think like limbo has this negative connotation of like not knowing exactly, but I think Barzakh is, mm, there's like a peace in not knowing somehow. What was this desire to go home or like what was home in the first place? could I consider this space that I'm renting an apartment in the center of Algiers that I've just moved into two years ago? None of the objects are mine. Um, I've kind of just like adopted this like concept and it's embedded in all of these materials that I was really trying to locate. What was that kind of desire to go home if, I wanted to understand what home was, I think, through that um, interrogating those objects. And um, I remember calling my friends in Algiers, and I was like, I have this really crazy idea. Um, I want to move everything the apartment to Basel, and they were like, why? It was about this tent. It was, I didn't even know why, you know, I was just like, I need, I need to, <laughs> you know. Um, somehow I thought that I would understand or that this question of home would become there would be a clarity and I was like if I can't go in like maybe they can come out and I think that's also something this kind of theme that reoccurs for me is like you know objects will always have the freedom to move I mean obviously if you know certain objects cannot um, or materials but or like this potentiality that, you know, the material world can have in movement that like human beings cannot. Um, so at the time, you know, I remember speaking to my friend Mimi and she was actually in my flat in Algiers at the time that we called and she, I was like, you know, I, I want to move all of these things. I want to ask the landlady if we can borrow all of this stuff move it to Basel for the show and then return it. In not being able to go back there, I would have to rely on all of my friends there to, like, help me pack everything. And, like, and then Mimi, she was like, I feel like you're dead or, like, you're asking us to perform this this labour that you one would do for their loved one, you know, to ask someone to, like, go through your belongings, to make decisions for them, you know, like how to protect them how to pack them all of these questions then became so integral to how the work was like handled um and who by that preparation of course i was like there i mean you know i think i spent from the majority of every day like on facetime to someone (laughs) when everything arrived in Basel, I remember like, I remember like watching the truck being unloaded and like all of the, you know, like the washing machine, like the fridge, the cooker, like my bed, I don't know, everything. And very quickly was like, I have to reassemble, I have to make it legible again. Like I need to be able to understand it like now. (laughs) So you very quickly, you know, um, I asked them to help me move the furnishings into the right positions. Um, but this was all done by memory. So I was like, the fridge goes here, The this goes here, you know. And then I started unpacking everything like, like a maniac, you know, like trying to find the answer somehow. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, I remember like opening, you know, it was like every single glass was like bubble wrapped, like nothing had broken. Um, And that was so profound, I think, to also kind of the question of home was actually registered the labor of love that was performed by all of the people back home in like carrying out this kind of desire, I guess, or like um, carrying that question with me. So the door was part of um, the installation. The door that I asked my landlady if I could cut out of the apartment. So I don't, I mean, God bless her. She is like an incredibly, um, yeah, she's an incredible, I mean, yeah. I can't believe like so many people be like, how did she agreed to let you do this and i was like i have no idea but um she just trusted me i guess i think you know when i remember when i first called her my landlady being like can i please borrow because most of the objects belong to her family you know like i had very few things in there like some clothes my books and so it was also this kind of relationship of trust that had been built between myself and the landlady and her family and me kind of looking after that space in renting it, you know, that was also extended, but also like, not just extended, but that question of trust and... to entrust a space to me, to then extend that question of trust to like an art institution or like an audience with the doors, you know, I think for me it was... that held everything it held, like, in terms of materiality, it was, like, it was the the kind of imposition of the colonial project in 1901. Then it was this, um, you know, the addition of the, so it was, like, the brickwork and the wooden door from 1901, and then the addition of the metal door in the 90s, and then also, like, this kind of, like, psychological space that, I had also created around that threshold you know in like every time I went home I would like lock lock more of the locks based on how vulnerable I was feeling or like if I didn't feel safe you know I would lock all of them I don't know you know and it was this something about like wanting to disrupt that or like to kind of disable that um, door from functioning somehow like for me disabled like all of um, the the mechanisms of fear that it was able to kind of contain. and um, you know I wanted I wanted the audience to be able to touch everything, and I wanted people to be able to kind of enter that space as if they were coming to my house and you know to be able to interact with everything. In an institution, they were like, you know, what if something gets stolen or like damaged or what happens when, you know, we can't control like how, if you're saying to people that they can touch everything, like we don't know what's going to happen. We can't take that responsibility. But I think this was precisely the point. Um, I wanted each person entering that space to take their own responsibility for how They came into contact with, or like how they behaved. Maybe not behavior, but how they would like use this trust, let's say. I had to really practice letting go. You know, I was like, what does it mean to let go? And to let go of like everything that you attach meaning through like if you you know it's like okay my clothes or like my writing or like people are going to be going through all of this stuff but there was two things happening there because it was like this lady's stuff and my stuff so it was also this blurring of like not knowing what belonged to who but you could tell and people like reading my writing or like seeing an item of clothing like how does that reflect on like my integrity or like what they might think about me Yeah, and I remember, like, being at the opening in Basel and, um, like, watching this couple, like, sit on the sofa and go through my one of my entire, like, diaries or something, and I was just watching them reading, like, for two hours. And I was like, this is so... It was, like, hard, (laughs) you know. I was like, I need to just... If this work can do that, if I can get over um, attaching... This question of like integrity to like material objects and like even like words. Yeah, I didn't really grow up in this kind of like binary, like family kind of roles. And, you know, I I grew up like with many people and that was like normal eating with like hundreds of people or like, you know, being carried by how many people, you know, this kind of to grow up in a community has a very different um, tools. The kind of integrity of the family is extended. And I think... In the way that that kind of informed how I think definitely like shifted my idea of like public and private space in a community, like everything is shared. Not everything, but, you know, um, just this kind of like concept of hospitality or like hosting or like being a guest or like, but it's not about those hierarchies even. It's about like sharing space, resources contributing um, to the needs of others, not only, your you know, all of these kind of, like, um, things were, like, instilled in the way that I grew up, I guess. Growing up in this kind of very radical Christian community that my parents, I guess, founded, you know, they really had to fight for that space. And I think, obviously, Algeria being a Muslim country, of Christianity came to the country um, through, like, the colonizers at the beginning, we could say, you know, in more kind of recent historical terms. But, you know, there are, like, for example, St. Augustine was from from Annaba in Algeria. And, you know, that there are kind of roots of Christianity in that region. You know, it really kind of erupted in the late 80s, early 90s. And this was at the same time also um, that the Civil War was happening. Um, And so a lot of people were converting, um, you know, it began with this series of miracles that were happening in the mountains of people being miraculously healed. You know, what I found interesting was that many of the people that were converting had never, like, seen a bible before or like had never like been into a church you know all of this kind of conversion was happening um through like experiences you know of like witnessing or experiencing a miracle and you know i think it's really important to stress that the the kind of social climate also was like that of deep unrest and this also kind of created this space for people to also look for another way out, you know, or like another alternative. It was a way for people to like survive. And belief is um, a space that offers that. That is like a relief for the body. Yeah, so loads of people started converting to Christianity and, um, and people were looking for other Christians. So it very naturally kind of turned into this community of people obviously being like part of a kind of minority group there was a lot of you know persecution or like being pointed out as like other and you know I think that kind of had a very um uh important role in thinking about like what is allowed and what's not who has the power to decide what someone can or cannot do and Where does that, um, where do these decisions, where are they rooted? Um, And I think with my parents kind of like still very actively fighting for that freedom to like, or the freedom for people to believe what they want to believe, you know. I mean, it's like a daily um, practice as well as like a fight. Like, my dad was arrested three days ago and interrogated for two days. Like, this is kind of things that happen constantly. I think that mode of thinking or, like, that kind of stubbornness, I think I can definitely say that it comes from them (laughs) because, I mean, they are probably the wildest people that I know in terms of, like, how relentless they are for, like, what they believe to be true growing up in that kind of understanding like what devotion looks like you know I know what that means or like I've witnessed it you know some things are unexplainable (laughs) and growing up I was very in contact with things that you couldn't really explain. Like this kind of concept of like miracles or like people being healed or a situation resolving in this kind of extra or like unhuman way. And all of these were kind of signaling towards there being like some field or like force of energy or like power elsewhere. You know, I think beyond kind of this the question of, like, religious belief or, like, spiritual practices. I think, you know, for me, it's more about, you know, tapping into the potential of, like, this power that is all around us. Um, I'm not really sure how to describe it. It's... I don't know, but, yeah, I think belief is really... um, hard to talk about because it's like it's so fragile you know um at the same time as being like this immense like source of potential or like energy I think belief is so it changes in you and it changes with you and it's something that you have to practice you know Um, you cannot acquire it and you can't learn it, you know, from my own kind of like interrogation into what it means to believe, you know. I think obviously kind of trying to have my own understanding of it and practice of it and not wanting to be told to believe in something, you know. Yeah, I did this um, this exhibition at the Wattis um, in San Francisco, and I was speaking with um, Anthony Huberman, who was the director there until very recently. But, um, you know, all of our discussions were about this concept of belief and, like, how is it registered in the body? Like, where does it exist, you know? And... Um, we were really just trying to understand, ask this question materially. I mean, for me, it was like, obviously, I had this, like, understanding of, like, my parents' belief, and, like, I could see what that means to embody, to be embodied, but I was really trying to find another way to describe it, you know? Um, And part of that question was about, like... um, It was about, like, the miraculous. The title of that exhibition was Solar Cry, which was this term that um, I borrowed from George Bataille, and it was this cry that would happen in, like, an infant, like a child who'd just been born. Whilst being, like, absolutely necessary, like, that sound being produced by way of necessity, it also um, made me think about, like, yeah, that word necessity. Like, when is it necessary for you to believe in something? When is it necessary for you to trust in something? Um, I think it is, there has to be like inter- an interrogation or a, this kind of contact between what you're able, your ability, and then something that lies beyond. I really worked through that with sound in that show. And it was, um, you know, I, the, whole, the whole show for me was like an orchestra. So, like, um, there was this opera that was happening between a woman and her own voice, let's say. So I asked an opera singer to come to the space and um, to record in a flat a note, this note for one hour. So I just asked her to sing an A-flat for one hour. Her her voice was changing throughout the whole process because she was like struggling to keep it up. And then straight after that, the next hour, I asked her to record a B-flat for an hour. And then again, like her voice was growing more and more tired. So the piece was installed. It was like, it was called A-flat, B-flat in these kind of reel-to-reel machines facing each other in the room. And in the moments where she would fail to hit the note, there was, like, the potential of there being, like, a perfect harmony if she slipped either way of either of the notes in the course of that hour. And, you know, that was, like, a moment of, like, a miracle, you know, where, like, maybe she, like, through her body failing and her voice failing that they reached this perfect harmony, you know. There were many ways that I was kind of thinking about how to kind of materialize the notion of belief yeah, it's it's an impossible So sync was this 24-hour performance inspired by um this kind of synchronization theory which is um to do with um the heartbeat being able to synchronize with another heartbeat if they are in proximity with one another physically or if they have like an emotional connection you know even like with a mother and a, a child like but like a baby's heartbeat is twice the speed of uh, an adult. So it's, but this whole kind of like the attempt to, um, for there to be a kind of unison. And, you know, I was just kind of like, what would happen if, like, could this happen between strangers in a room? It was inspired by meeting someone who's become very important in my life. Um, We were together in Lecce in the summer and um, we'd been making all these recordings, like, underwater, and, um, and then we took these recordings to this piano school, and um, we were, like, playing the recordings back into the piano, and, like, we were kind of just messing around. Then at one point, um, we had this, like, hydrophone that we were using for the... And it's kind of this... looks like a, a stethoscope. <laughs> um, so at one point we put this this hydrophone to each other's hearts and we're not listening to the heartbeats. sounds very cheesy, but that's really where it began. And um, it was also this kind of relationship that became a part of Sync, Um, all this like want to kind of exist alongside someone else. So the piece, um, we wanted it to be like a 24-hour thing, so that people would be coming in and out throughout the day, throughout the night. It was kind of this, like, a cycle that would also cancel time out in itself. Um, So there wasn't, like, a beginning and an end, you know, or to kind of, like, loosen that boundary somehow. Um, People would come, and we kind of had this choreography. You would, like, go and put your coat down. Then if you wanted to participate, you would have... um, this very sensitive microphone taped to your heart and then you would be walked down into the kind of pit of the space, then plugged in. And then we had like a sound engineer that was, um, you know, slowly bringing people's heartbeats in. What was so beautiful about what happened in that room, as soon as people came in, everyone was kind of whispering. Um, it became this almost like if something, there was something sacred that was happening, I think. And just the act of, like, listening to each other's heartbeats, but also, like, trying to locate your, you know, I think many people kind of spoke about them trying to hear their own heartbeats in this kind of constellation. When I think about, like, material or, like, matter again, um, for me that, that work was, like, kind of the ultimate um, transfiguration of material. It was like you know, the absolute essence is like the heart beating and this rhythm and also this chaos that can be informed by so many you know factors um, like emotional, physical etc. But this kind of measure or this like anchor that would go on we kind of toyed with the idea of like destroying the recording or there was also some discussion about using the recording to create a score and so that like you know we would basically make this piece of music that was like 24 um positions and that each channel would be like the heartbeats that were kind of coming in and out over the 24 hours. But there was something almost, I felt it to be unnecessary to kind of mind something that was so perfect <laughs> in a way. You know, even though it would be nice to have this kind of record of what happened. But actually, I think the myth is the record people's experiences in that room and the way that that piece lives on you know as a kind of um as an event you know i think when i was in the very early stages of working with nicholas and sophie from the kw you know we were having these like very long conversations and i think you know i'm i'm so grateful to um, it's really just the way that I think and work by like speaking but sometimes it takes a long time I think we were talking for about a year and initially I was kind of like talking about myth making like how do you produce a myth that was really one of the core questions it was like a myth has to be an event there cannot be a kind of concrete proof of something, Um, you know, myths are stories and they're also carried, it's what someone deems worthy to tell, you know. Um, But they're also experiences that have to move every single carrier. Um, And so the myth really became this, like, this mode of transmission. What? i do is like these the experience of something and like the time spent with something or like to kind of embody these questions you know history will exist either side of you um but i think how do these kind of histories create a meaning in your own life like in a very real way you know i think the experiences that you also haven't physically had but have heard about You know, like, these things also kind of impact how you move through. How do those histories kind of make themselves known in our present moment? Um, I mean, I've been reading a lot recently about this, the concept of debt being like... um, you know, not only like a conceptual kind of agreement between two parties, um, but also like that a debt can live on beyond like the life of the person and it can extend to like their family members or, you know, there is this kind of, um, the weight that one carries through what's come before before them. But I think with that, you know, there is, you're able to kind of transform those histories if you can if you can interrogate them, you know, through your own experiences.